G'day folks, this is a quick introduction before my actual introduction. Um, I recorded that a few days ago. I'm just going to put this up here. Um, two things. First of all, I just want to say, uh, for those of you who are not Facebook friends with um, John Young or who uh, don't have any way of knowing what he's up to, um, I spoke to him on the phone this morning and he... As, as he has put up on his Facebook page, um, he did get some photos on his uh, trail cams, camera traps of the buff-breasted button quail. Um, so first of all, I'd just like to say congratulations uh, to John. That makes him uh, the person who has got the very first photo of the two last birds in Australia that haven't been photographed. Buff breasted button quail, night parrot. That is an achievement that literally can never be achieved again. Um, so big congratulations to him. Um, I know that he's uh, going to head out and try and get some more photos with the, like an actual camera, uh, some better ones, but he now has the spot. Um, as far as I know, he's shown those photos to Lloyd Nielsen and that's it. He said he's not uh, putting them up on social media and is going to release them I think those two are putting together a paper or something or other. Anyway, um, just want to put that out there. Congratulations to John. Um, a lot of hard work goes into that. And we will, uh, I'll probably get him on the podcast again at some point and talk about it. Until then, uh, the only other thing I want to say, so my introduction is like 10 minutes long, so I don't want to take up this too much time here. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say was uh, I talk about um, Australian ringnecks in my introduction. Uh, everything I say is wrong, <laughs> which is good. Um, the ones that I see on my trip are the Mallee subspecies. I saw some uh, well yesterday driving home from work, um, which was still daylight when I was coming back because it started raining. So hence why I could see them well enough. So despite what I say in my introduction, they're not the Paul Lincoln subspecies, they are the Mallee subspecies. That's all. Here's the introduction. You're listening to The Birder's Guide with Michael Greenshirts. G'day folks, welcome back to The Birder's Guide for another fortnight. Uh, in case you haven't guessed, um, Harvest has started. For those of you watching on YouTube, this is not my uh, usual around the house sort of wear. Um, just orange hive is for those listening to the podcast, uh, but I've just got in from work and uh, this is the first time I've had a chance in the last little while to record my introduction and to edit this conversation. I actually, re I actually recorded this conversation uh, about two weeks ago. Sorry, I'm supposed to be looking at the camera up here and I keep looking at myself down here. Anyway, uh, recorded this about a fortnight ago uh, with Dean, but haven't had a chance to edit it. So this is it now. Sorry, my son's just driving his trucks around outside. Um, if I get some wet weather and I can find someone who's available on sort of like six hours notice, I'll probably record another one and release that. But if that doesn't happen, uh, I've recorded this one and then I've recorded another episode. Uh, they were both on the same day, actually, with uh, Donna Belder, which I'll release probably in about a fortnight's time. Uh, and then hopefully I can get some more in between there, but uh, no guarantees on that. So um, 
I will say this though. Uh, sorry, I'm going to hopefully pronounce your name right. Uh, Guillaume Dorig uh, is another um, Australian birder. So he's just started another podcast called Birding Today. When I first heard that it was coming out, I was like, oh, that sucks. Now I'm not going to be the only one. But uh, very quickly moved on from that. I think it's great that there's some more Australian-focused birding content out there. Um, and all the best to him. And with his podcast, uh, maybe we'll get him on and he'll get me on and we can do an episode together and uh, see how that goes. But it's called um, the Birding Today podcast. You can find it anywhere that you find your podcast. Um, he also has a Facebook page, Birding Today, I think it's called. So go and have a listen to that. Um, he's only sort of just started. I think he's got maybe five or six episodes out. But uh, yeah, while I can't keep up with my usual schedule, that might be something you can go and listen to and then feel free to come back and listen to mine afterwards. But no, uh, good on him. And I wish him all the best. And maybe at some point we can do a combined chat. Anyway, in terms of birding, for myself, obviously harvest has started. So that means I'm stuck inside my truck, which albeit is a very comfortable truck, um, but uh, doesn't make much time for birding. So I've given myself a challenge of trying to find 30 species during harvest. So my trip from the farm to the silo is about 20 kilometers at a guess, 20, 25 kilometers. And hopefully 30 species. I don't actually know how many I'm up to currently. Uh, honestly, haven't had time to sit down and think about it. Uh, it's been pretty flat out. Um, so I've got the day off today because uh, the people I'm working for, uh, which are good friends of mine, um, are reaping lentils. So they're storing all of that in their own silos. So I don't have anything to cart around, which is fine. We're going to go to Adelaide, spend the day as a family, which will be nice. Anyway, uh, birding. So uh, what have I seen that's of interest? We have a lot of blue bonnets on this road, way more than I was expecting. In fact, I wasn't really expecting to see any. So I probably see 20, 25 blue bonnets on each trip. Um, that's cool. Uh, I probably see half a dozen ringnecks, which I also wasn't really expecting to see. I thought I might see one or two here or there, but um, yeah, about half a dozen every time. I always see them when I'm driving about 80 k's an hour down a windy dirt road with blind corners and not a very wide road. So I haven't had much time to actually look at them. I have to sort of like keep an eye on the road in case someone comes around the corner. But I'm fairly sure that the ones that I've seen have been the Port Lincoln subspecies. They just seem to have a very black head. Uh, they're usually flying away from me when I see them, but uh, I'll have to pay a little bit more attention to them. But I think they're the Port Lincoln subspecies and not the Mallee. We're sort of right on the border of the both of those subspecies, but we're on also on the wrong side of the Spencer Gulf for the Port Lincoln subspecies. Anyway, I think they're the Port Lincoln ones. We'll see. I'll keep a better eye out. Um, when I get down to the silos to tip off uh, the barley, which is what I've been carting so far, um, there's where you tip off or have been in the last few days because they've had all the bunkers shut because it's been wet and windy. 
um, there is a peregrine falcon nest, uh, which I discovered because one of the parents zipped in front of my truck chasing a pigeon and then returned about two minutes later with, I assume the same pigeon, maybe a different one, uh, and started feeding the young that were in the nest. So they're probably, I want to say, well, they're less than 50 metres from where you park your truck, um, <clears throat> which is pretty close. I'm sure it wasn't uh, very busy when they chose that spot, uh, but it's very busy now. Anyway, so uh, there's two adults, there's two chicks. They're pretty old. I think they'll probably start uh, flying in the next probably couple of weeks. So anyway, peregrine falcon nest that I can look at every time I go and tip off some barley, which is pretty wonderful. Uh, also, when you're sitting on the Outwoods Way Bridge, uh, there is a pair. <coughs> Sorry. There's a pair of masked lapwings, which have two very, very tiny little chicks, which are very cute. Um, kids dragging shovels over concrete. Um, yes, uh, masked lapwing chicks. So they, I'm hoping they survive, to be honest, because uh, quite often they will like scurry off the road as you drive off the Waybridge to drive past them. Anyway, masked lapwings, two chicks, they're very cute. And I think that's probably about it in terms of um, interesting things that I've seen. Haven't seen any chats. Haven't seen... I've seen a few um, black-shouldered kites. Haven't seen them around for a little while. Anyway, that's all right. So uh, next episode, I'll, I'll start actually keeping a tally of how many species I've seen. The next episode, I'll let you know. I would like to... Uh, before we get into this conversation, just give a shout out to Swarovski uh, for their sponsorship of the podcast. I genuinely appreciate it. Um, I appreciate anybody who helps keep this podcast going from uh, publishers who send me uh, books to review or Swarovski who help out. Um, well, they gave me this pair of binoculars here, which was spectacular uh the nlp was so they come with me everywhere including in the truck which uh i mean you have to have them on you you never know what you're going to see but at the same time my truck gets a bit dusty sometimes and it makes me feel a bit nervous but anyway they live inside their bag inside the truck um so my nlp was which are here and my scope which lives here are probably my two most prized possessions in the whole world <laughs> not even joking um i really would like to get the uh the btx eyepiece the dual dual eyepiece um but unfortunately i don't really have like four thousand dollars just lying around so maybe one day anyway thank you to swarovski um for their sponsorship muchly appreciated if you don't have a pair of well any pair of Swarovski binoculars you could you could do worse things with your life uh definitely recommend the NL Pures easily the greatest binoculars I've ever looked through not that's not even um I don't have any sort of uh I don't have any sort of requirement from Swarovski to sell their stuff uh which is pretty spectacular in terms of um sponsorship things but uh that's just that's just my genuine opinion they are the greatest now to the conversation
in this one, we're chatting to Dean Ingleson uh, about his work with Regent Honeyeaters. He works with BirdLife uh, Australia, which will that'll all come out in the conversation. But uh, Regent Honeyeaters, yeah, enjoy the conversation. Chat to you at the end. Uh, Dean, welcome to the Birders Guide. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. Really excited to be here. Now, uh, before we get into it, a little bit about yourself. Um, we've just, well, we were just talking uh, just then about uh, your wife getting out the house and meeting some people. Does that mean you're based in Melbourne or Sydney? Yeah, I'm, I'm in Melbourne. So yep. we've suffered through all of the lockdowns that uh, Victoria's had imposed upon them. So yes. very much looking forward to getting out and about again. Yeah. Well, I was just reading uh, literally just before we got on here about um, New South Wales is essentially opening up their borders to international people as of, well, I don't know when, but without any quarantine. So that's uh, good, bad or otherwise, that's how it's going to be. <laughs> it's an interesting pr- prospect that we can travel overseas before we can perhaps travel to Perth yeah. or Broome or some of these other cool birding spots we might, might want to go to. But... Yeah, that's right. Anyway, um, so you're based in Melbourne. Uh, have you been in Melbourne all your life? Uh, so I grew up in Gippsland. Uh, oh, yeah. So uh, my my parents uh, were both uh, essentially city people, um, although dad grew up in Wonturna South at a time when it was um, more you know agricultural uh, than, than it is now. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up in... First few years of my life, we lived in the Streslecki Ranges out of a place called Merbu East. Uh, yeah. And then... And then lived in Mall for the next twenty years or something like that. So, yep. um, yeah, I've been in Melbourne for about twenty years now. Yeah, nice. Hmm. So, uh, we're going to talk about your work uh, with BirdLife and Regent Honey Eaters. Have you? Yep. Do you classify yourself as a birder, or do you just work work with birds? No, I'm very fortunate in that I'm a birder and I also get to work on birds. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's that uh, really luxurious position for someone yep. who's into birds to be able to combine your, your passion and your hobby and and work all into one so yeah for sure um yeah that it has that good side of it but i, I don't know ask my wife and it probably has the downside <laughs> that every holiday we go on is a busman's holiday where we've got to incorporate all kinds of birding side trips and things on the onto the end of the itinerary but i think um, i think most wives and husbands non-birding wives and husbands just they just except that every holiday is a birding holiday, no matter where you are. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. just how it is. Um, yeah. So how did, you, how did you get into birding? How, was it, were you young um, or later in life? Uh, it's, it's probably both, to be honest. It, it's um, with, a, with a block of nothing in the middle. Uh, so my earliest memories of birding-related stuff are my, um, so my, my dad's mum, so my grandmother, um, you know, who had the market garden in in uh, Wonturna South, uh, when we go there and visit, you know, she always had books laying around the house or magazines that uh, that were bird related. And I don't know what it was, but I just gravitated towards them. So, I'd, yeah. you know, we'd go and see grandma and grandpa and I could still have memories of sitting in their lounge room while everyone else sat in the kitchen chatting. And I was flicking through these books of and magazines of birds and she had little bird statues in the lounge room. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but I've always kind of had that natural affinity. Um, and then, you know, as I, I guess, you know, early age, um, you know, became aware of it. How I remember a primary school teacher, uh, sorry, a librarian at my primary school was a birder who I subsequently met uh, only a few years ago. 
uh, and she was right into it. So she was always encouraging kids to grab the Gould League book, Gould mm-hmm. League books off the bookshelves and that sort of stuff. And then I guess through my early teenage years, um, you know, mate and I used to jump on the bike and disappear out to places like tyres and um, and other bits of bush in between and do a bit of birding. And then, yeah, to be honest, I was a crap birder. I didn't really know often what I was looking at. Um, and it then kind of translated. So I spent probably five years getting into aviculture. So dad in particular, but my parents, but dad in particular were really supportive of that. So we had aviaries in the backyard that, um, you know, were full of neophemas and native finches and that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, that, that they're probably my earliest birding recollections and how I got into it. So, yeah. Um, not not um not typical for a lot of people but also yeah just that family connection and mm. and the link with grandma and whatever yeah do you still uh do you still keep birds of any sort i don't know so since i was um probably 16 or 17 you know th- dad had them for a few years after uh, i moved on to other things um but yeah it's probably that long ago uh since i've you know been actively involved in in the agricultural side of it and yeah i probably still have a soft spot if, if for nothing else other than you know as a kid you're like oh, i'd love to have hooded parrots but where we lived was really cold and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff so i, I still have moments where i think oh that'd be cool to have them in an aviary in the backyard but now i think i'm really more focused on you know trying to keep them alive in the wild and yeah um yeah still have an appreciation for it but not actively involved anymore yeah we live yeah. um just north of adelaide and my neighbour just over the fence keeps birds. And for the first sort of week after we'd moved into our house, I'd keep walking outside and I'd be like, hell, that's a red-winged parrot somewhere. <laughs> or, you know, there's a major Mitchell cockatoo somewhere around here. You know. It's it's amazing once you get a ear in, once you're a bird, even where we live here in northern Melbourne, you know, where we walk the dog, there's a house along there somewhere that's got a cockatiel. Yeah. And I can hear it from miles away. And I'm sure most people are oblivious to it. But every yeah. time we walk the dog, I'm listening out for that cockatiel. Yeah. Is it still that one in the cage or have we got a random that's on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pretty yeah, wish If we, if we had a red-winged parrot turn up here, it'd be something special. <laughs> yeah. Um, the cockatiel in northern Melbourne would be very exciting too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did you... Uh, so you currently work for bird life um did you do you have any sort of tertiary education in yeah focused so area in, in the previous section i talked about you know my early memories of, of getting into birding was was that that stuff with grandma and the keeping birds at home and, and then um and then i kind of went off and did other stuff so i went and started a human movement degree at university i was going to do yep. sports psychology i was going to be involved in sports to some degree or another and then I then I deferred and and kind of worked with my oldest brother doing a few different jobs here and there. Uh, w- worked in a water testing lab and and just like oh I've got to go and do something else. I feel like you know I, th- there's something else I need to do. I'm not quite sure what it is. And um, <laughs> as it happens, um, so my wife and I have been together since we were teenagers. Uh, we we went to La Trobe Uni in um, Bandura for an open day and. I'd actually gone on along to get all the information on their space science degree oh, yeah. of all things. And uh, as we walked through the biology building, my wife's like, oh, I think you should pick up that stuff on the conservation biology course. I'm like, nah, not, <laughs> not for me. Um, and I don't know what it was within, within a month that the, the, the switch had kind of gone off in my head that oh, yeah, mm. actually I'm really into that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I applied as a, 
oh, I guess a youngish mature age student. So I went back to uni kind of in my mid early to mid twenties um, and did a yeah, conservation biology and ecology degree at, at La Trobe Uni. And um, yeah, as I say in the classics, the rest is history. I yeah. had some amazing mentors and, and lecturers at, at that university that were just so passionate and so inspirational. And um, yeah, when I went there, I was like, oh, that's it. I'm going to go and work on mammals. They're the thing I want to do. And within six months, you know, Mike Clark and the late Richard Zan and a few others had me on the bird track and I haven't looked back since. So they mm. kind of re reawakened the, the love inside from when I was very young. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah. Talking about your, I don't know whether she was your wife at the time, but um, directing you towards uh, that path. I, was, I think it's amazing how the people who know you sometimes know things about yourself that you don't. I was, um, in a previous life, I was a chef and uh, only because my mum suggested that I go down that path. I'd love food and I love cooking all my life, uh, but had never once even thought about doing it as a career and uh she sent me down that path and i loved it loved it and um yep. yeah similar yep. to you know similar to your thing people yeah yeah my, no, my you, wife constantly like reminds me she knows me better than i know myself yeah yep. <laughs> so how did you get into working with bird life when did that kick off oh i guess when I was studying at, at university, uh, as I said, you know, people like Mike Clark and, and other lecturers were very big on um, trying to instill in, in the students, the undergrads, that um, having a degree when you come out at the end, particularly in this field, is not enough. You've got to have skills and experience and, and connections in, in the industry, if you like, in, yep. in the sector. Um, and, you know, I, by a couple of months in, I was hooked back on birds again. So... Um, very fortunate that at that time, you know, what was then Birds Australia, which is now BirdLife, uh, had a head office in Hawthorne. Um, so, you know, it was only a, an extra 25 minutes down the road from uni to, to get to uh, Birds Australia's office. So I think while I was, I might have even been at the end of first year uni, I just kind of hit them up and said, oh, here I am, I'm really keen, I'm interested to help out, what can I do? So I volunteered for a couple of years in the office doing data entry, helping clean up files, helping assist with, you know, surveys for orange-bellied parrots, basically anything I could get my hands on. Mm. Um, at the same time, there was a, a, a bird, what was then Birds Australia's Victoria group were running a, a bird banding project in the Rushworth Forest in central Victoria. Mm -hmm. um, that um, the late Joan and, and Charles Sandbrick ran. Uh, so I, again, I volunteered on that. Um, so once a month, I'd disappear into the Rushworth Forest uh, and, and get hands-on experience learning bird banding and all the intricacies of mist nets and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I just, every opportunity I had, I, I kind of jumped at in terms of getting hands-on experience and, and making connections with a network of people. Mm. Um, and then, you know, as, as, I don't know, it's luck or whether it's that, you know, that preparation and those connections that you make. Yeah, as, as I finished my undergrad degree, I went into an honours year. Um, and because of my connections at Birds Australia, they needed someone to coordinate mainland orange-bellied parrot surveys for that season. So mm -hmm. I juggled the two while I was doing my honours research. I was also coordinating, coordinating the mainland OBP surveys. Yep. Um, and then as I finished my honours uh, degree, there were a couple of jobs at Birds Australia that 
uh, were advertised. I applied for them both and I got one of them. Um, and I've, I've been with the organization ever since. So, so how long um, have you been with them now? So I started in an employed capacity, you know, full-time in 2006. So yeah, what's okay. that? I'm, I think I'm coming up. I'm nearly 16 years I've been there. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, so, so you currently work with um, Regent Honey. It is before, before that, um, did you have any, uh, did you have any roles or particular projects that you were part of that really stand out as being enjoyable? Oh, look, to be honest, most of the work I've done at Birds Australia slash BirdLife has been enjoyable and, I, and I've loved all of it. Um, my first role after the OBP stuff, so when I started there full time, um, you know, some listeners might remember that Birds Australia used to have a program called the Threatened Bird Network. Uh, and, and it was really around getting volunteers and community members involved in recovery work for threatened birds across the country. So. Yep we were kind of acting as liaisons back then, you know, this, this is in the age before dark ages before social media. So it was, you know, databases of people that are interested in going and volunteering, spending their time helping on Western ground parrot stuff and Gordian finch and, you know, arid bird surveys and that kind of thing. So um, yeah, I, I had four years in that role uh, where we, we worked to liaise and, and hook volunteers up with all these amazing projects. Um, you know, I got to go and do some of this work myself. I, I um, you know, kind of imposed myself a little bit on, on an AWC Gordian Finch survey up at Mornington Station uh, mm. after probably only eight or nine months in the job. And, um, yeah, they're all very accommodating. And it was amazing. It was one of my birding highlights, spending a week up there. Um, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was my first role at BirdLife. And then probably since then is when I've shifted more into the woodland bird space. So, yeah. um, you know, th there was funding from the federal government then to do recovery work for um, Regent honey eaters and swift parrots. But that was when um, the Rudd government had come in. Peter Garrett was the federal environment minister. And there was a really big push to um, multi-species projects. And so we packaged up a woodland birds for biodiversity project where we'd kind of do some swift parrot and regent honey eater stuff for the, the pointier things, but we'd also do a range of recovery actions aimed at, at um, you know, a broader suite of threatened woodland birds. Yeah, nice. uh, and, and the role I mean, has probably evolved just ever since then, but yeah, as part of it since then, since 2009, um, yeah, I've been the national recovery coordinator for regent honey eaters. Yeah, nice. Um, hmm. We have a few people who listen uh, who are not from Australia. And quite a yep. few people who listen who um, are not necessarily big birders, they're just interested. Um, yep. Can you explain what you classify as woodland? Oh, Is so, that explainable? Yeah. <laughs> without a photo? It, it, without a photo, yeah. There's a, there's a traditional classification that I think comes from the 70s, which is trying to classify... Um, habitat based on the structure of it and particularly how much canopy cover you've got so for those who know this stuff better than me and i get it wrong i apologize in advance but you know something above above 70 percent canopy cover with a, a a full tree height is your rainforest of various types you know closed canopy not much light gets through and all that kind of stuff woodlands is is the open habitat so i think it maxes out at about 30 percent canopy cover so the notion is that it, it's not 
it's not Mali, which is your multi-trunked, um, you know, semi-arid, arid adapted stuff. Um, woodland as a classification is generally for, you know, t trees or really tall shrubs, but you've got open canopy in between the trees. So there's lots of light that gets through. Um, you know, there, there's understory that's either grassy or shrubby. Um, yeah, so that, that's probably my best description uh, is of, there of a, what a woodland is. Is there a perhaps a well-known national park or conservation park that would be a good example that most people would have heard of? Oh, so it's, 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 it's a little bit hard because a lot of the places that I work, particularly for Regent Honey Eaters, where you go and do um, conservation work, a lot of them have been subjected to lots of really intensive change. So if, if I think of Chiltern Mount Pilot National Park in Northeast Victoria, where I've spent a lot of time doing Regent Honey Eater conservation work, Mm. Yeah, that, that forest was almost exclusively stripped to bare earth um, 120 years ago with the gold rush. Yep. So, yeah, the early literature suggests that, you know, well, you look at that habitat now and it's quite monoculture in terms of the age and the structure of the habitat. Yep. Um, so it's probably a bit more closed than you would call traditional, you know, woodland. Um, but that, yeah, if you if you think of that kind of habitat, but in a more open setting, um, yeah, that that's probably a, a good way to think about woodland. Yep. I'm, I'm struggling to think off the top of my head of what a what a national park would be that people that's, might know that has a, a proper woodland habitat. That's right. Chilton's pretty well known. Yeah. Um, so Regent Honey Eaters, um, do you want to give us a little bit of background or just general information about? Regent honey eaters habitat distribution yep. um, history that sort of stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, well, without doubt, they're the coolest bird on the planet. Uh, so they're <laughs> great fun to work on. I'm very, very biased. Um, you know, when when Europeans arrived in Australia, some of the earliest accounts we have of Regent honey eaters in certain regions in certain seasons is thousands of birds, like literally thousands of birds. There's descriptions of people riding horses through forests and all they can hear are the calls of regent honey eaters mm. um, they obviously they, they still moved in a seasonal sense so they're what we call a rich patch nomad they they will move around the, the landscape um, long distances in search of really good flowering events so yep. things like white box and and mugger iron bark and yellow box these key eucalyptus tree species when they flower really well in areas Honey eaters will appear, and that and regent honey eaters are one of those. They'll move long distances. Yeah. Um, again, you know, two hundred years ago, regent honey eaters occurred from Adelaide uh, through you know Western Victoria um, up the Dividing Range uh, north of Brisbane. There's a couple of kind of transient records about halfway up the Queensland coast, but you know north. 100 k's north of Brisbane, maybe a couple hundred k's north is probably about the limit of what they would have traditionally uh, occurred across. Um, you know, the, the eminent early ornithologist, um, John Gould, had them breeding in street trees in Adelaide uh, when he was in Australia. So, you know, that, they were much more widespread than they are now. So if you think of their distribution now, um, you could almost draw a line at... Uh, Probably Bendigo would be the, the current, um, you know, westerly limit other yep. than the odd, again, the odd transient that might pop, pop up a bit further west. But, 
that that's kind of now their western limit so we consider them extinct in south australia and mm. far western victoria um the rest of the range is largely what it was um but the issue now is just the population size so yeah. you know where, where people describe thousands where people describe individual flocks of hundreds of birds our best estimate at the moment uh, is a population of 350 birds. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, because we've got so few birds spread across such a wide range, there's a margin of error in that estimate as well. So it may very well be lower. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, things have changed a lot uh, in, in the couple of hundred years that Europeans have been in Australia. What's the... This is a very broad question. Um, what's the main reason for that i mean i don't i haven't heard anything like you know no one's using regent honey to feathers in hats or anything like that they're not being yeah shops or feathers or anything as far as i know um yeah no it, it, it is literally the the really stereotypical conservation issue of loss of habitat mm. um if you think about the kinds of areas that regent honey eaters used to utilize you know the woodlands temperate woodlands of southeastern Australia, mm. in some regions, um, some catchments have three to five percent of that original habitat remaining. Yeah. Um, yeah, your best estimate in some regions is, I don't know, 15 or 20 percent of original habitat remaining. Um, yeah. and, and unfortunately, where those best habitats were, the most fertile soils, uh, is right where we, we get the best farming productivity. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Europeans with the way they manage the landscape and, and farm for, you know, for food and for fibre, um, those trees, those habitats have been pulled out. Um, and, you know, for a region, honey, you think that you know, they've left now almost with a subsistence lifestyle in terms of the habitat that's left available to them. Um, I mean, the interesting thing for me as someone who's spent over a decade trying to save the thing from going extinct is, what's the difference between them and a yellow tufted honey eater or a, mm. or a white nape honey eater or a yellow faced honey eater. They're still common in inverted commas. Yeah. And I think it's just an, an evolution in terms of the way their, their habitat preferences work, the way they've evolved to move around the landscape. Um, and then, you know, over and above that now you have all these other myriad threats that are piling in on top of that one of which is noisy miners. So, mm. you know, the, the native noisy miners um, are a species that have benefited enormously from our landscape changes. Yeah. And they bash the daylights out of anything else that's smaller than them that wants to crack at the same resources. So yeah. not only have regents lost their habitat that was there, what's remaining is often suboptimal, not even because the habitat's not great, it's because it's dominated by the, the schoolyard bully. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're really up against it. So I, I read somewhere recently talking about habitat um, loss. I read somewhere that um, I don't know if this is even a bird life project, but uh, Regent Honeyeater habitat planting restoration, um, something about it being one of the biggest volunteer efforts in Australia for conservation or something like that. Um, is that a bird life project or? Uh, not strictly run by BirdLife, but we're you know, through through the recovery team. So we have a re national recovery team for Regent Honeyeaters that's been in existence for 25, 26 years. Yep. Um, 
there's there's community groups and other organizations that have done a lot of habitat restoration the one you're referring to i think is the one in northeastern victoria around Benalla. so there's been this amazing regent honey eater project in the lurg hills just outside of Benalla, where they've planted um off the top of my head it's close to a million trees in about 20 years um yep. the focal species being trying to get regent honey eaters back into that landscape Mm -hmm. um, but we've also been doing habitat restoration on the outskirts of the Chilton Mount Pilot National Park. Uh, we've got a 25-year restoration program through the Capity Valley in New South Wales, which is yep. arguably the nursery of the bird, uh, and certainly traditionally. Um, so yeah, there, there's lots of work that's been done by members of the recovery team um, around trying to restore and rehabilitate key areas for them. Mm. So besides habitat restoration, what uh, what other projects do you have on the go with Regent Honey Eaters? Well, I mean, just on the restoration path <clears throat> a bit more, I mean, one thing we've tried in the last couple of years, Regent Honey Eaters are also reliant on mistletoe in certain regions at certain times of the year. Mm -hmm. And um, in the Hunter Valley in particular, one particular species of mistletoe get, gets killed by fire and we've had some fires go through some key, key habitats and in the Capity Valley, for example, um, needle leaf mistletoe in the river oaks has been affected by the drought. So for the last couple of years, BirdLife's been leading some trial restoration projects to try and effectively reseed some of these areas with mistletoe. Mm. Um, so that's that's exciting to, you know, it's a, it's a different aspect to the traditional stems in the ground kind of habitat restoration plantings that happen. Um, We've been working really hard for a long time. We, you know, myself and previous recovery coordinators uh, and, and researchers color band as many birds as we can in the wild to try and get a handle on movement, survival, um, yep. you know, persistence in, in the population. Um, we've been working hard with partners over the last few years to try and get um, conservation covenants ap applied to high quality parcels of property on, on private property. Yep. Uh, so that's been a successful um, program in, in particularly the Capity Valley uh, and the, the Lower Hunter Valley. Lots of community education and outreach, trying to get people aware of, of what's happening with Regent Honey Eaters. Um, and then obviously, um, you know, captive breeding and release forms a big part of, of what the recovery team's trying to do these days. Um, we've got a, a long running breeding program started in 1995 under the guidance of, of Taronga Zoo. Um, and since, uh, yeah, since we did a trial release in the Cape Dee Valley in 2000, and then since 2008, we did five releases in Chilton Mount Pilot National Park in Victoria. Uh, and then last year we did a release for the first time in New South Wales in the Hunter Valley. So yeah. we've, we've released about 300 birds into the wild in that time uh, and, you know, constantly evaluating what we're doing why we're doing it is it working um yeah. but yeah it's, it's really hard for a release program for a species like this they they can live for 11 years in the wild mm. um our, our longest known movement of a banded bird is 580 kilometers um you know i've got these amazing examples of groups of birds banded in chilton for example and um one bird turned up in the capity valley three years later a month after that, myself and a colleague found one in Rushworth Forest. And the following year, we found one, another colleague found one in Kilawarra. And you know, in each instance, they, they've kind of gone to, you know, north, northwest and west, um, spread over hundreds of kilometres, feeding on different species of trees at different times. And 
I kind of make the joke, you know, welcome to Regent Honeyeater Conservation, where <laughs> you're trying to manage multiple sites across different tenures, different states. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the challenge is pretty big. Do you find that uh, because obviously you've got you've got them banded so you can keep track of these things? Um, do you find that uh, wild-born birds versus captive-bred birds uh, survive longer or do better? Um, yeah, we're still probably crunching the numbers on that a little bit. We know from the banding work that we've done traditionally, you know, the, the reciting rate is around, hovers around 15%. So 15% of the birds we band and release will see again. The numbers have been a little bit higher in recent years. With, you know, ANU's Difficult Bird Research Group have, have been doing lots of great work. Um, Ross Crates in particular with his, his research uh, on the species, he's getting a slightly higher reciting rate. Um, we know the long-term resightings of, of um, you know, released birds, again, is around that 14, 15, 16% mark. So we think from that angle, the, the releases are working well in terms of putting birds into the environment. The resighting rate of them is comparable to, um, or at least close to, um, you know, the resighting rate of banded birds in the wild that we, that we deal with. Um, the question really, uh, is you know you, you don't want to release birds for the sake of releasing them and then you see them again and you tick the box you know they need to be incorporated into the breeding population and they need to breed themselves either you know with other birds you release or ideally with with wild birds so again you know that for a species that's so rare to get that evidence outside of a release year when we're radio tracking them it, it's hard but yeah we, we have evidence of birds breeding in multiple years post-release, either with other released birds from their year, with birds from a different release year, uh, but also importantly, with birds in the wild. And, and encouragingly, we've had you know, captive bred females mate with wild males, and we've had captive bred males mate with wild females. So mm. um, yeah, there, there's, there's a good level of integration there at the moment, but we always want to improve and, and we need to improve for the for the future security of the bird. So compared to, you were saying that you get a reciting of 14, 15% now, to me, that seems very low. Um, yeah. As someone who doesn't do any work with <laughs> threatened species. Um, is that like, is that normal for, you know, a, a release pattern for any sort of species or is that higher or lower than you would expect? And um, it, it's probably about what we'd think is a reasonable return. Okay. It, it's, it's really, it is hard to compare because a lot, you know, a lot of other projects and programs that you talk about, you know, the ecology of different species comes into play. So, you know, as I said, the longest known movement we've got is a, a bird that I banded in the wild that had bred at uh, Eagle Point in Gippsland. Um, and it was seen by uh, one of our volunteers in the Capity Valley 20 months later, 580 k's away. Mm. A lot of other kind of critically endangered release programs, of I think in a Victorian context, um, helmeted honeyeaters as the state faunal emblem, uh, a subspecies of, of yellow tufteds, um, you know, they're sedentary. So you get the right patch of habitat. Um, you know, they, they don't move more than tens of kilometres that we know yeah. of at the moment. Yeah. Um, so you, you're basically 
it's hard to compare what's happening with a species that covers millions of square kilometers compared to a species that covers you know tens or hundreds of square kilometers yeah um and i guess it's similar with other you know recovery programs i think of new zealand things like stitch bird uh and and you know the, the robins and other stuff they deal with over there but yeah it's much easier to get a handle on what's happening when you're dealing with kind of discrete land masses um so that that's one of the challenges but i think at the moment and and the reviews that we've we've done and have, have had others do it you know the, the numbers that we get at the moment are, are reasonable but yeah we, we've done a population viability analysis led by anu this year and you know we there's kind of a a very optimistic path out for this bird but improving the outcomes of releases and the size of the releases and so on that that's a big part of um you know potentially saving this bird yeah um oh, i was gonna ask lost my train of thought um what's what's the uh like long term so longer than you'll be involved say uh what's the what's the goal here do you think you'll ever get back to you know flocks of 100 or 200 regent honey eaters around the place um i'm hopeful i have moments where i'm really <laughs> hopeful but uh, you know it it depends on which, how i feel on the day that i wake up if i'm if i'm optimistic i feel like you know we're we're doing the right things it's just the scale and the and the outcomes that we get on the pessimistic days and you see as an example, over the last couple of years, uh, you know, we've we've got a new national Regent Honey at a monitoring program. We've got a 1,200 sites across Southeast Australia. We survey twice every spring, um, set up by ANU uh, and and you know in, done in collaboration between ANU and BirdLife. Now, yeah. there's sites on new, northern New South Wales with that were picked three years ago as beautiful yellow box woodland, big mature trees, grassy understory near water those trees are all dead. Like they, we've literally lost um, potentially hundreds of year old um, habitat trees during the last drought, um, mm. you know, in the, in the run up to those 1920 bushfires. So they're the moments where you go, oh, just, I, I don't see this ever turning around. It just feels like the, the pressures on this bird are just ever compounding. Mm. Um, but, you know, I guess the eternal optimist in everyone working in conservation is you just keep having a crack at it and, and hanging in there thinking that at some point it's going to turn. Um, yeah. And as I said, we, we've done this PVA, the population viability analysis this year, um, you know, big releases uh, every couple of years in and around the greater blue mountains region is one part of the puzzle uh, as well as, you know, again, ANU and, and other researchers we've worked with, we know um, at the moment we've got historically low breeding uh, outputs in wild birds. So they're suffering as well as all this other horrible stuff. They're mm. suffering from high levels of nest predation. Yeah. Um, so we, we've kind of got a target for what do we need the breeding output out of every wild nest to be? And then what do we need the release program to look like yeah. while we're doing all the habitat restoration and stuff. Um, so there's a model that suggests we have a way out, but, it, yeah, it's optimistic and a lot of things have to go right for us to do it. Yeah. Um, talking about captive breeding, uh, just a thought that popped into my head then. Um, people who are private bird breeders, you know, aviaries at home, breed parrots and finches yep. and whatever, 
Yep. Do they do you utilize them for breeding regent honeyeaters or other threatened species, or is it sort of like a controlled university program? Uh, yeah, it, it's it's all all of these programs are controlled by the Zoo and Aquarium Association. So yeah. ZAR is the acronym. Yeah. Uh, so anyone that yeah is involved in breeding programs for things like regent honeyeaters or helmeted honeyeaters, orange-bellied parrots, they have to be ZAR accredited. So there's a you know, a list of requirements that are, are needed around um, quarantine and management and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, um, yeah you know, th there's, there's the age-old argument around getting private agriculture involved in, in some of this sort of stuff. But for the moment, um, yeah, it, it's our accredited organisations only. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Um, yeah. So the big thing that's been in the news uh, recently-ish uh, around Regent Honeyeaters is the fact, uh, I can't remember who put out the paper or whatever it was, um, yep. that Regent Honeyeaters are losing their ability to sing, their yep. learn learn their song. Um, was that a bird life study or was that something that you were involved in at all? Uh, I was involved. So yeah, I'm, I was a co-author on that study. Um, so the, the paper was published with, uh, so Ross Crates out of ANU was the lead author. Um, but there are a range of people on that on that paper that contributed either ideas or data or, or you know mm. knowledge. Uh, so it was a you know, quite collaborative with Taronga Zoo and, and other um, Regent honeyeater experts. Um, and it, look, it's an issue. Um, for a long time, we've known if, if you look at the early literature in the '90s, Regent honeyeaters were considered to be able to do mimicry. Um, and I, I guess um, Ross in particular, you know, asked questions around that. Um, we all kind of had a, a think about it. But the thing that we noticed, particularly Ross, when he's doing his fieldwork, is that there seemed to be an increasing number of birds that were making calls and songs of other species that weren't Regent honeyeaters. Uh, and so we kind of had a, a bit of an archive of songs that we, we had from, you know, late 80s, 90s. Um, We've also been recording some song of wild birds. Uh, and then Ross said about, in particular, capturing songs of birds that he was picking up during field work he was doing. Uh, and then obviously we have this um, uh, library, if you like, of, of birds in captivity that, that are, you know, we've got access to all of those birds and the way they, they sing. Um, yeah, so the analysis that, that, that's been done and, and the results show that over time, the Regent honeyeater song is becoming simpler. So they're, they're losing elements of their song. Uh, and worryingly, for those birds that are being picked up on their own or a long way from um, other Regent honeyeaters that we know of, uh, that's where we're starting to notice this increase in, in birds giving the songs of other species. And, and so, the, you know, again, the suggestion is it's this loss of, of vocal culture within this species that the, the number of birds available in the population to be tutors for young birds has, has diminished to the point where, okay, well, I, I don't have the right people around to teach me how to sing properly. So, sorry, right people, right birds. So I'll pick up other, other species song. Um, and so, you know, the, the question mark around that is, well, what's the consequence? Well, from the analysis yeah. we've shown, the consequence is the birds that are making those other songs are actually um, less successful in terms of breeding. They, they, they get less mates, the, the outputs are, are lower. Uh, and so if you think of mimicry, typically 
and this is why you know it, it's not suggestive it's not mimicry mimicry is generally the element that gets added to say hey i'm a better i'm a better bird than than the neighbor yeah um that that's not what seems to be playing out here mm. um and i guess the the other complication in all of this is that for a long time we've known that the captive birds don't make the right song anymore mm-hmm. um you know that the captive population was started in the 90s they They've been held in captivity for a long time before we started doing larger releases. And over that time, they're housed in collections that include other native birds, other exotic species. So birds have picked up phrases of noisy pitter and you know, other things. Uh, and so birds that we're releasing have a very different song to wild birds, either you know, the traditional song or, or these what we're calling clipped songs that are losing um, some phrases. So... Mm. That's, that's another aspect that we're trying to build into improving the captive release program is, um, you know, Ross and, and colleagues uh, are now looking at different treatments within the zoo. We, we've, we've trialled for a few years, you know, playing proper songs to them. Yep. Um, but Ross and a PhD student in particular now are looking at how do we, how do we set up the system in, in the zoo? What's the best way? Is it through just playing songs to them or that, do they need a live tutor in front of them, you know, mm. an actual male regent singing the right song to learn from. Mm. So yeah, it's um it's complicated. <laughs> mm. Just to add another another aspect to the yeah the job. Um, how I mean, as you say, and and it would seem obvious that not being able to sing their own song has an impact on their ability to, I guess, find a mate and whatever else but how i don't know if you can if you can even answer this but what's the like what is the percentage of importance that the song has do they um like does the male use the song to to find females or vice versa or is it a courting thing or it's it's more a courting thing um but also used i think often we're finding lone males so this is another aspect of it that there seem to be more males than females in the population mm-hmm. uh, at the moment. Um, and so, you know, th- there's an element of that, which is trying to find each other. But then, you know, once you, once you have male and female together, that's a big part of his vocal repertoire to be able to yeah. woo her, that he's the man for the job. Mm. Um, and yeah. What's the importance of this to the overall recovery of the bird? It's really hard to say. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you said, pick the top three things to, to work on. It's really hard. You know, th- there's so much interplay between all of the different elements that we're trying to work on. Um, yeah. So h- how it plays out in terms of you know, the, the long-term trajectory of the species is, is really hard to say at the moment. Um, yeah. The critical thing is that, you know, we've worked out this is an issue. Um, th- there's something happening in the wild our captive birds don't quite sound right. You know, we've got to put steps in place to fix that. Yeah. Um, how, how that happens, how long it takes, I don't know. In the interim, you know, it, it, it's still probably a numbers game, just trying to get as many birds released as possible and, yeah. um, and, and deal with the fallout as we go. Mm. Yeah. So does BirdLife or um, any other organisations you know of have any um, anything new and exciting or potentially game-changing in the pipeline that you're looking at 
working on or is it just yeah, a matter so, of solidifying what you've achieved so far? Well, as I said, I mean, the, the PVA was really encouraging in that it, it kind of um, reinforced that what we're doing as a recovery team, bird life, all of the things that we're implementing with federal funding, state funding, working in conjunction with local land services and others, um, Taronga Zoo's breeding, the research we're doing, ANU and others. So we're all kind of doing the right thing. It, it's, yeah. you know, are we doing enough of it? Are we getting it exactly right? Um, so now's the time where we're kind of not navel gazing, but just reviewing a, a, a few of these things. Um, one thing that we are working on uh, and, and very hopeful to get going soon is there's always been an element with Regent Honey Eaters. So I, I joke that, you know, in a traditional sense, it varies a bit geographically, but they're, they're largely a spring breeder other than they can start a little bit earlier in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, but once the breeding season finishes, particularly these days, I have moments between January and, and let's say April where I struggle to know where a Regent honey eater is anywhere in the landscape. They, they literally disappear on us. And we've kind of got theories on, on where they might go and what they might do. Um, but the technology, you know, we've, we've tried radio tracking before, but it's just not up to snuff. Um, so what we've got our hands on at the moment through some support of uh, friends of AWC and, and some um, other federal funding is uh, some satellite transmitters. So that technology has now improved to the point where they're small enough to put on a bird uh, as small as a Regent honey eater. Um, so that we're, yeah, we're ready and basically ready to go over the course of, you know, later this year, um, start deploying a couple of satellite transmitters. And the beauty of these things is they, um, they've got solar panels on them. They talk to satellites. So you literally, um, you know, catch the bird, stick the transmitter on, um, let them go. And then you go back to your office and do your field work from the computer. Um, so we're, we're really hopeful that that provides us with that insight into where they go in those months where they disappear on us. Yeah. Uh, but, but also, you know, importantly, as I said, that some of our band sightings of both, you know, captive release birds, for example, we, we've had one bird just turn up in Wangaratta in Victoria, um, seen in private property. Um, and it was released in, in a captive release in Chiltern in 2015. Mm. He was seen again in 2016. He turned up again and tried to breed a few times with a couple of different females during the 2017 release. He then tried to breed in Wangaratta, uh, adjacent to some private property. He then vanished. And two days ago, he's turned up again in Wangaratta. So we've got this four-year gap. I've got no idea where this male's been. Yeah. What's he done? You know, which part of the landscape has he utilised? Are, are there parts of the landscape that, uh, you know, that we need to think about managing that we, we don't at the moment? So really hopeful that this satellite tracking stuff can can answer that you know you, you can get multiple fixes per day you can literally track the bird as, as people have seen with you know godwits and um you know seabirds and all of that kind of stuff to have that technology now able to fit on a regent honey it is really exciting yeah i think that'll be um well fascinating to see where they go for one like yeah <laughs> no one knows they just disappear yeah. so um yeah it'll be really interesting to see what what comes out of that um yep. So my last question around, uh, well, no, I guess uh, second to last one around Regent Honeys. Is there anything else um, that you think would be worth mentioning uh, that I haven't asked 
already? Um, uh, I've probably covered off on all that we've all that we do and, and why we're doing it and and you know what we're trying to achieve. Mm. I guess I'd just like to say for people that are listening, you know, that Regent Honeyeater Conservation in particular and, and, and woodland birds in general and other species, but I'll talk specifically about regents. There's an enormous amount of community involvement and effort that has gone into trying to save this bird. And it, it cannot be underestimated and understated. Um, if you know, We touched on the habitat restoration work that we've done. That's all volunteers. You know, that at best, there's a paid coordinator that might pull these things together, but it's then 150 people from Sydney that come to the Cape Valley twice a year and, and they plant 5,000 plants. Um, mm. You know, that, that Lurg project is, is 20 or 30 something thousand people have, have kind of walked through the door and planted trees and, you know, sometimes in torrential rain and hail. And, um, and, and then I think about the releases in Chilton, for example, you know, we'd have 150 or so volunteers each year come and do, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of labour. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I guess I'd just like to take the opportunity to, to acknowledge that. And, and for people that are listening, it, it's an enormous collaborative effort from a range of organisations and we're all working really hard. But, yeah, we, we can't do what we're doing without that support of the community. Yeah. Um, my last question uh, was going to be and still is, is a sparrow pecking at my window um uh for people who do want to volunteer or yep. um is there anywhere in particular that they can go and the second part of that question do you do any fundraising or sort of anything like that if people want to donate to the cause yeah absolutely um you know birdlife australia uh you know employing me as as the recovery coordinator um we're always seeking people to if people would like to donate to regent honeyeater conservation they can do that and and they can direct birdlife to use that donation for for you know woodland bird conservation or regent honeyeaters yeah um if people want to um donate their voice you know we think of birdlife you, you donate your voice your, your your time or your dollars um you know, in terms of the things you can do for a species like this or the, all the work we do at BirdLife. So, you know, donations are always welcome in terms of financial contributions, but, you know, we run campaigns around critical issues like Warragamba Dam raising at the moment, potentially floods are really important, Regent Honey at a breeding site. Yeah. Um, there's other contentious developments that we're always after people to voice their support of and, and opposition to um, for those things. Um, and then time. And, and I guess that's been the really hard thing with this COVID stuff for the last couple of years. Mm. We've, we've had to cancel tree plantings. We've had to you know, cancel bird survey weekends. Um, but if people Google BirdLife Australia Regent Honeyeater, hopefully it'll get you through to um, the, the right part of the page where you can either get my contact details or find information on, on some of the recovery actions that we've got going that people can get involved in, like those tree plantings and, and survey weekends. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll find um, I'll find out where to go, and I'll put it up uh, in the information on this podcast if people are interested. Um, awesome. But yeah, Dean, thanks for giving us I don't know probably about forty five minutes of your time. Uh, it's been good chatting, and all the best moving forwards with uh, saving some honey eaters. Fantastic. Thanks, Michael. So thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, my next conversation is with Donna Belder, uh, which I mentioned previously. So that'll be coming out at some stage in the near future. Hopefully, if I have the time, uh, I will record some more. If not, 
um, happy birding over the next sort of six to seven weeks and go listen to the birding today podcast and I might put up a, I'll put up a link in the show notes to get you to the Facebook page and yeah, happy birding. <laughs>